I don't know if you've ever had a medical emergency where you call the doctor only to be told that you have to wait. You ever had like a dental emergency? I mean, if you're going to have a cavity go off, you don't want it to be on a Saturday because you can't even call until Monday and who knows when you're going to get an appointment. So you just get agony day after day after day until you can finally get in or you'll come up with weird creative ideas. I remember one time Garrett had a cavity. He shows up at our house with a whole bottle of vanilla extract and he's just like, swashing and spitting. We're like, what are you doing? He's like, I don't know. I read it on Google. I think it helps. But he was in pain. And at those times, like anything will do, you know? Uh, or sometimes I jokingly, you know, everybody has like their weird remedy when you say, I'm sick. And they go, oh, have you tried? And they'll give you whatever, like whether it's an essential oil or whether it's like, have you ever tried like, you know, putting garlic on your feet? I, I, like weird stuff, right? Because they Googled it somewhere and they're hoping that that's going to make them feel better. So I, I, I always say like, have you ever tried like taping a carrot behind your ear? And they're like, really? Does that help? No, but people are always open for really weird things when they're desperate, right? So it's sad when you find yourself in a situation where you want help, where you're calling out to where you would call out to in order to get help, only to be told, there's no help for you today. You have to wait for another day. This week, it was nine years ago that we were pregnant with our third daughter. And uh, we had made it 26 weeks in. And Hannah went into labor at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And so we rushed off to the hospital. And uh, the medical team started calling around. This situation required care that could only be given on a Wahoo. There wasn't the opportunity for any um, airplanes or emergency flights to get there. Everybody was off. The medical staff was down to where they had to come in and give us the report that there was nothing they could do. If it would have just been a few hours later, like what they would have offered us would have been different. But they had to tell us there's nothing that they could do. And we had to sit there and like together navigate the loss of our daughter at 23 weeks or 26 weeks. She was completely viable in any other situation except for there was nothing that they could do. You have, you would have to wait. We're different people now. We were where we would go in order to get help, but we were told there was no help for us. Could you imagine trying to cast your cares upon the Lord only to be told, God can't hear you today. God won't see you today. To be in so desperate need of His mercy and you come to Him because you know that He's abounding in mercy only to hear, my mercy can't extend to you today. That's what we're looking at here in this passage a time where people were claiming that there was no help to be found on a particular day. 
And so we start our study in John 5, in verse 16. It says this, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So let me refresh your memory. There, just on the north side of the Temple Mount, at the Pool of Bethesda, a pool that was named the House of Mercy, was a man who had been a paralytic for 38 years. We find out from Jesus that his condition had been brought on by something about his past that was sinful. And so this man who had spent such a long time just sitting there, stewing in his own stench and his own thoughts, mind fully alive with the regrets of the past and wishing that things would be different, hoping in a legend, and yet unable to reasonably imagine that anything could ever change, that change was even possible until Jesus came along. And I'll just tell you, when Jesus comes along, he changes things. If you're in a place today where you're hoping for change and you don't even know it's, like, you wonder if it's even possible. Jesus changes things. Jesus changes people. Look to him. John 5, verse 8 and 9, Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well. He took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. And because Jesus had done these things on the Sabbath, or as the NIV has it, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, But in the original language, the verb there denotes a continuous action. So it's as if it's saying Jesus just kept on doing these things on the Sabbath. He was so predictable at it. Like, what day is it? Oh, it's Saturday. Let's keep an eye on Jesus because you know he's going to do something to set a bunch of people off. He kept on doing it. Like when they set the man with the withered hand in the synagogue in order to set Jesus up. In Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it says, And he entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely. Here's the setup. Let's watch him closely. Because we all know what he's going to do. They watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Let me ask you guys a question. Is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? 
Is it lawful to save a life or to kill a life? All they were concerned with was, is it lawful to work or not? Jesus is like, let's set the work issue aside. Let's talk about good and evil. Saving or killing. Let's talk about that. Because remember, as he said in another place, go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. They had one idea. And their idea was, don't work. And here's Jesus coming on the scene, and he is restoring. He's restoring. Remember how I talked about how Sabbath looked back to the sixth day of creation when God looked at all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Everything was very good. There was nothing disjointed. There was nothing sick. There was nothing you know, dying or diseased. There was nothing wrong. It was very good. And then that gives segue to the seventh day. And on the seventh day, God rested. And it says, no, it doesn't say the morning and evening were the seventh day because that rest was a continual state. Sabbath looks back to that. And Sabbath looks forward to what we read about in Revelation, where Jesus himself wipes away the tears from their eyes, and there'll be no more death, nor dying, nor sorrow. There won't be any pain for the former, nor any curse, for the former things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. The restoration. So Sabbath looked back to when God had made it, and it was very good, and it looks forward to when he restores it, and again, it is very good. And here's a man with a withered hand, and what does Jesus do on the Sabbath day? He restores. He restores his hand. In Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 14, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and said to the crowd, there are six days in which a man ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. How dare you be healed on the Sabbath day? Not today. You can stay bent over one more day. You can wait. I know you're in crisis and you've been in this crisis for 18 years. One more day won't hurt you. And yet Jesus, he made her straight. He released her from her infirmity. She was restored. And later, sneak preview, what we're going to find in John 9, verse 13 through 16. They brought him who formerly was blind to, uh, to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also asked him again, saying how he had received his sight. 
And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. A man born blind receives his sight. And their response is, this man is not from God because he does these things on the Sabbath. As if to say, God doesn't do these things on the Sabbath. And anyone who does things like this on the Sabbath is obviously not with God because God obviously wouldn't do this. Miracles, healings work on the Sabbath. And Jesus just kept on doing it. And now he gives his defense in verse 17. Verse 17 tells us, But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Jesus doesn't answer their accusations by speaking about the Sabbath. Like, the real meaning of the Sabbath is, he doesn't get into any of that. He addresses their accusations by speaking to them of the Father. See, they took it as an issue of rest, and they ran with that. But it was God's rest. It was God's rest. And what they did was, it was God's rest, and they wrestled the God right out of it. When it came to rest, Jesus says, guys, my father has been working all the way up till now. And I am working. No days off. No vacations. God does not take a break. In fact, he says, the God who keeps you shall neither slumber nor sleep. He doesn't even take a nap. Colossians 1 says that God is holding all things together. Could you imagine if he's like, man, it's hard work holding all this stuff together. In fact, I'm supposed to take a day of rest. Let me just not hold all things together for a minute. Supernova. You know, <laughs> aren't you glad <laughs> God didn't take a day off and holding all things together? Hebrews chapter 1 says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Man, this is getting heavy. I should just not bear any burdens on the Sabbath. And then... Aren't you glad? Without the sustaining work of God, creation just couldn't last. Now God did rest from his work of creation. But God works, and he continues to work up until now. And notice that Jesus doesn't say, God works, and I work. He says, my Father works, and I work. From that verse 18, 
Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, the Sabbath breaking got their attention. And when they asked him about it, he takes it even further. (laughs) That made you mad? Check this out. My father has never stopped working. And I work. You said my father. All the more. They want to kill him. Why? They understood what that meant. That he was claiming equality with God. Now wait. If they would have gotten the wrong idea about what Jesus was saying, because some people say, like, they'll come to your door, bing, boom. Ah, did you know that Jesus never claimed to be God? Oh, have you ever read the Bible? Yes, I read it. Oh, you read the one that that was written at the end of the 1800s. What about the Bible that the apostles wrote? The ones that the, um, you know, the archaeological record validates. The ones that the manuscript evidence backs up. You know, the one that's supposed to be the foundation of the church, resting upon you know, the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. What about that Bible? That Bible says something totally different. That Bible, it's very clear that these guys knew they were, they absolutely picked up what Jesus was putting down. And that's why they sought to kill him. Now, if while they're getting their mind blown, you're making yourself equal with God. If, if that wasn't what he was trying to communicate, The very next verse would say, and then Jesus said, hold up, guys. That's not what I'm saying. But instead, he keeps reinforcing what he is saying all through the chapter, over and over again, making claims that only God has the authority to to make. And it's not just here, by the way. John chapter 8. Verses 58 and 59, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to throw at him, and Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Why were they throwing rocks at him? Because they picked up the message. Before Abraham was, I am. He's saying that, like, he is existing outside of time. He's saying that, yes, I'm here present, and yet I am the eternal one. They got it. That's why they're like, "Uh, no, you're not, rocks. And he just walked through. On another occasion, the Jews wanted to stone Jesus. John 10, 33, the Jews answered him saying, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus didn't deny that charge. Rather, he defended the claim. But they started to realize that he's not just a man. Like when he forgave the paralytic sin. The Pharisees reasoned in Luke 5.21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. And from there, Jesus backed up his authority to forgive sins by healing the man. And then at the climax of John's gospel, when Thomas saw the risen Savior, it says in John 20, 28, and John, or Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And there Thomas worshipped him and ascribed deity to him. Now, Paul and Barnabas, remember when the people came in and they said, it's Zeus and Jupiter who've come down to us. And these guys tore their clothes and they said, stop saying that. We are men just like you. Remember when John in the, God, or in the book of Revelation, twice he was so overwhelmed that he fell down and wor- tried to worship the angel. And the angel said, get to your feet. I am just your fellow servant. Worship God. Why? Because it would be completely inappropriate for anyone to receive worship. Unless they were God. And as Thomas proclaims to Jesus, my Lord and my God. So by what authority did Jesus work on the Sabbath? One word. One one statement. He says, my Father. My Father works uh, right up till now, and I work. And now Jesus is about to give us a very orderly sermon about his relationship to the Father and what that means in his daily life. But he'll also make it clear that because of his relationship with the Father, because of who he is, that we ought to pay absolute attention to what he says. And so with that, here comes the big section. Verses 19 to 23. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Son also does in like manner. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does, and He will show Him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus begins here by saying that he can do nothing other than what he sees the Father doing. Please, like, understand that. Jesus just wasn't out doing whatever he wanted, any random thing that came to mind, and then just like, oops, it happened to be on Sabbath. The Jews thought that their kind of Sabbath, the kind of Sabbath that denied the hungry, kept sick people sick, that that was just following God. It's it's sad that you happen to need healing on the Sabbath, but don't be asking God about that because no one works on the Sabbath. We're just following God with this. 
And yet here comes Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Here comes Jesus making clay and sticking on somebody's eyes and healing him on the Sabbath. Here comes Jesus telling a guy to carry his bed after he just healed him after 38 years of paralysis on the Sabbath. Why? Jesus says, look, I'm just doing what God does. I'm just doing what God does. And with God, these deeds of compassion, they were not optional. Jesus here in verse 19 is saying that he can do absolutely nothing apart from the Father. Notice it's what the Son sees the Father doing, that's what he himself does. He doesn't say that he's doing similar things. Like, I see God do this kind of stuff. I see the Father do this kind of stuff. So I'm just following in my Father's footsteps. It's not a that kind of a scenario that he's describing. He doesn't say that he copies the Father's deeds. He says that he is doing the same deed that the Father is doing. That everything the Father does is a joint venture with the Son. That every healing, every activity, every movement and motion and word is a direct joint venture with the Father. Why? Okay, ready? If you can get this, this concept right here is a big concept. If you can get this, simple phrase, massive implications. Why? Because God doesn't have parts. Okay, ready? God doesn't have parts. So some of you know, most of you know, my family is Irish. That's what we are. We're Irish. Um, my family immigrated from Ireland, and they took up residence first in Oklahoma and then in San Diego. And they're Irish. And when you're Irish, St. Patrick's Day is kind of a thing. Like every day of the year, my granny has like green in her house. It doesn't have to be St. Patrick's Day. There's going to be green in my granny's house. Every day of the year, there's going to be shamrocks in my granny's house. It doesn't have to be St. Patrick's Day. But this week is St. Patrick's Day. I think it's Friday. And I'll probably get a call from my granny, and she'll be like, Happy St. Patrick's Day. Be like, yeah, same to you, granny. Well, my aunt... She teaches um, special needs kids, and what she specializes in is blind kids. She taught herself Braille, and I mean, it was all a miracle, and, and God's really blessed her, given her a ministry with these special needs kids. And, um, but one of the worksheets that the Department of Education in San Diego had given her to pass out to her kids, not her, not her blind kids, but other kids, was this one. Shamrocks. The shamrock is one of the most popular symbols of Ireland and St. Patrick's Day. A shamrock is a young sprig of a clover plant with three leaves. Legend says that St. Patrick used the shamrock to describe the three parts of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And right there you go, hold up. That's heresy. I don't know if you caught it. But that is false 
doctrine right there. That is a straight out lie. Three parts of God. God doesn't have parts. Now you might be saying, well, it's just terminology. Uh, terminology matters. What you call things matters. If you call something what it's not, you're lying about that thing. And when you call God something that he's not, you're lying about it. You're lying about him. So God doesn't have parts. Now with that, I want to quote to you something. Um, there was an early church father, a little earlier than St. Patrick, uh, and his name was Athanasius of Alexandria. And during Athanasius' day, there was a false teaching going around called Arianism. It was this guy named Arius who came up with this teaching that says that Jesus isn't one with the Father, and he's not of the same substance as the Father. Jesus is a creation of the Father. So a lesser being than the Father. So Jesus created or was created by the Father, and then Jesus went and created everything else. That the Holy Spirit is a creation of the Father. And so the, the Son and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and therefore lesser beings than the Father. And that is a heresy. This guy, Athanasius, he stood up against it and he said, no, that's a lie. And they had what's called the Council of Nicaea. And at the Council of Nicaea, these 318 bishops all showed up. They, they went through the Bible. They carefully looked at what the language said. And they concluded that was false teaching. Now, after the facts, Arianism made a resurgence. And there was political pressure, and more and more of these bishops started, you know, going along with Arianism, like, it's not a big deal. And Athanasius took a stand. He was in prison. They threatened his life. And they said, why don't you just go along with it? And he said this, he said, Athanasius contra mundum. It was Athanasius against the world, like he would not change what the Bible teaches about God, even if it means that they kill him. So he's such a hero. And there were all these false ideas about who God is. So in honor of Athanasius and his bold stand, the early church came up with what's called the Athanasian Creed. And it says this. It says, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. But the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. What the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Holy Spirit. Uncreated is the Father, uncreated is the Son, uncreated is the Spirit. The Father is infinite. The Son is infinite. The Holy Spirit is infinite. Eternal is the Father. Eternal is the Son. Eternal is the Spirit. And yet, there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal. As there are not three uncreated and unlimited beings, but one who is uncreated and unlimited. Almighty is the Father, Almighty is the Son, Almighty is the Spirit, and yet there are not three almighty beings, but one who is almighty. 
Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. As Christian truth compels us to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so, and please don't get caught up on the word Catholic there, so Catholic religion, now let me back up. Nowadays, when I say Catholic, often you think Roman Catholic, which means like, you know, funny hats, weird clothes, come kiss my ring. You know, you think of like, like this, this church structure and fancy buildings and every really amazing art piece hoarded away in a building in a little country called the Vatican. Like you think this stuff. But that's not what Catholic means there. Catholic there means universal. What it means is, like, okay, so here we are, we're Calvary Chapel. And down the road over here, there's a, there's a Baptist church. Then there's, you know, up here there's some Pentecostal churches. But it doesn't mean that there's, like, three churches, four churches, five churches. Still, there's only one church. And even though those guys might be different, and some of those guys might say that we're not even part of the church, we're still saved the same way by grace through faith. It's the blood of Jesus, and the membership into the body of Christ happens. We're saved by grace through faith. And one day when we all get to heaven, we're all going to have to apologize to each other, being like, I'm so sorry, I was so stupid down there, like putting weird wedges between us. Like, I was mad at you because you played drums at church, and... We said you were of the devil, you know, like, sorry about that. There's one church. And yeah, we have a ton of sibling rivalry here, but there's one church. And that's what he's getting at. So if you're part of the one church, it forbids us to say that there are three gods or three lords. The father was neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son was neither made nor created, but was alone begotten of the Father. And the Spirit was neither made nor created, but is proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now, that little expression at the end, okay? And I didn't mean to, like, deviate off and kind of geek out on you, but you know me. I I love this stuff. So that little expression at the end, proceeding from the Father and the Son, it's a fancy term called the philocue. The philocue. Around 1240, there was the great schism between the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Over that, the philocute. Because the procession of the Holy Spirit. The procession of the Holy Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. The sending forth of the Holy Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. Why is that so important? Because there's a doctrine called divine simplicity. Divine simplicity demands this idea that God doesn't have parts. It's not that like the father's over here doing his fatherly things, and then the son's over here doing the sonly things, and the Holy Spirit's over here doing his spiritual things, and then sometimes they all come together and form the God, and we're going to do God things. Now back to our own stuff. God doesn't have parts. It's not like three parts that form together to make one whole. It's one God. 
It's not three parts that like when they join forces. God doesn't have parts. And if God had parts, he could fall apart. But our faith is built on the firm foundation of an unchanging God. One God. And the threeness, we don't even need to go there. However, we do know the Bible declares Jesus is God. That the Holy Spirit is God. That the Father is God. The Bible also clearly declares that Jesus is not the Father. That Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. And the Father is not the Son, and the Spirit's not the Father. The Bible declares that clearly, and yet it also declares that there's one God. So we don't even need to talk about threeness. There's one God. But yet we see the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But they're not each other. And however that works out, you can't say that God has parts. Divine simplicity. The Father and the Son. So look at this. What the Father does, what does that mean the Son's going to do? He's going to do what the Father does. If you look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up again. Romans says, he declared to be the Son according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it also tells us him who God raised up. Who rose Jesus from the dead? God rose Jesus from the dead. Was it just the Father raising the Son? Like, they, what God does, God does. Simplicity. Sorry, I kind of went off there, right? Now, the Father and the Son are working together. What the Son is doing, the Father is doing. And what the Father is doing, the Son is doing. And it's not just with the healing of the lame man. What Jesus is saying is all through his whole life, he and the Father are at one and are doing the same things. Even at 12 years old. Remember when Jesus was at Jerusalem with Mary and Joseph and they left thinking that he was with them? And then they sought him for three days. When they finally found him, he was in the temple and Mary tried to scold him. And what did he say? How is it you don't know that I must be about my father's business? Like where my father is, that's where I am. What my father does, that's what I do even at 12 years old, never acting independently of the Father. The relationship between them is so close, so intimate. He says it there in verse 20. The Father loves the Son. And that's a statement that's repeated in um, this gospel. 10, 17, 15, 9, 17, 23, 24, 26. It's the foundation and the basis of everything. And then there in verse 21, Jesus points out that the Father raises people from the dead and gives them life. Now, when the Jews heard that, they would have received that gladly. Yeah, of course. The rabbis had a saying that there were three keys in the hands of God that are not given into the hand of any other agent. And those three keys are rain, according to Deuteronomy 28.12, that of opening the womb, Genesis 30, verse 22, and that of raising the dead in Ezekiel 37, verse 13. So Jesus says that the Father raises people from the dead and gives them life. They'd have been like, yep, that's right. But then, in verse 21, whereas the Father raises the dead and gives, gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. 
And at that point, again, they would have lost their minds. Jesus, you're healing on the Sabbath. You're saying God is your father, making yourself equal with God. Now you're saying that you do only, you do things that only God does. It was definitely offensive because the life is the gift of the father, not given by any of God's agents. And yet Jesus says that he gives life to whoever he wants. Jesus does what God does. You know what Jesus does? He takes those who are spiritually dead. He takes people who are completely bound by all the distracting worries and cares of this world. And he gives them life. He gives them eternal life. And he gives them eternal life right here and now. It's not a matter of, look, I'd like to give you eternal life, but this is not the right day for it. Just wait till the calendar clicks one more day, and then we're good. Jesus gives eternal life. Here, in this life, we may know what it is to experience the life of the world to come. When God restores all things, when he sets it right, that right here and now, we can have that. And so in verse 24, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me. He doesn't say he who hears my word and believes it. He doesn't say he who hears the word of God and believes it. He says he who hears my word and believes him who sent me. There's such a unity between the Father and the Son that when you hear what Jesus says and believe it, you're believing the Father. What he says is what the Father says. So the Jews. The Jews presented a God who would use a day to bind people, a day to keep the sick sick, a day to keep hungry people hungry. And they claimed like, hey, we're just following God here. But Jesus is God at work. A God who has never ceased to work. He upholds and he restores and he strengthens and he heals. God shows mercy. God does good. No matter what day it is. Look, no matter what day it is, God does good because God is good. And today, the good thing is that the only day that God designates, the only day that he designates as the day in which you can receive mercy is designated, as he says in Hebrews 4.7, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What day is it for to receive mercy? What day is it for him to give life to the dead? 
Look at what does he say in verse 24. Most assuredly, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from life to death. What day are you going to hear his voice? Oh, not today. It's Saturday. Today's the day we stay dead. If we're going to have a spiritual awakening, it's, it's, it's got to fit God's schedule. He limits it to a day. There's a day that is the right day to hear his voice and come out from among the dead ones. And that day is today. It's always today. The devil says, no, it's tomorrow. No, no, it's a couple days down the road. At least it's after this happens. Then, then you can, that's when. And you just keep hardening your heart as the Spirit is calling. But it's always limited to a certain day. The day to receive that restoration and to, tr- to come out from among the dead ones, to hear His voice and live, is today. But don't harden your hearts. Let's pray.